When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Juana Godano-Kenworthy, and today I'm speaking with Tyler Wenzel, the author of the book, Not for King or Country, Edward Cecil Smith, The Canadian Communist Party and the Spanish Civil War, published in 2019 by University of Toronto Press. Tyler is a historian, a legal scholar, military expert, and a doctoral candidate at University of Toronto. Tyler, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So as I was reading your book, I found myself reflecting on the parallels between the current political global climate and the time when the life of your protagonist unfolded in an increasingly interconnected global world, the shifting poles of geopolitical power, and a disenchantment with the paradigms of the current world, the search for new answers. Um, Two decades before the hard lines of the Cold War were drawn in North America and long before accurate information about what was happening in the Soviet Union became available, communism appeared to many um, a viable alternative to the shortcomings of imperialism or of Western liberal capitalism. Canada was um, at the interface of two ideological spaces and um About 1,700 Canadians were ready to risk their lives and even go fight into a war that was not for their king nor for their country, but in defense of an idea. Um, Not for King or Country tells the story of the Mackenzie Papino Battalion, part of the International Brigades in Spain, and the biography of its commanders, um, Edward Cecil Smith. So I'm really excited to get more into this with you, Tyler. Please tell us a little bit about yourself and the genesis of this project. How did you get interested in the topic? Well, I personally have a military background, and I've always been interested in military history. Um, even back when I was doing my undergraduate, I thought, wouldn't it be great to do something about the, the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, but never really got around to it. Fast forward, and I find myself in, in law school, and foreign fighters are in the news in a very different sort of way. Um, This is during the ISIS years. And I start to ask myself, well, I'm in law school. I love military history. What's, What's the law governing these folks? So I started to do a lot of research and I became very interested in this commander of the Canadians in Spain, Edward Cecil Smith. And I was, I was going to use him as, you know, maybe a paragraph in an article I was writing just as an example about what laws applied to him and which ones didn't and why. And the more I learned about him, the more interested I became. I thought it was going to be 
more of a military history, just about his role as a, as a military commander with a little bit of law sprinkled in there. But the more I learned about him, the more interesting his backstory became. And before I knew it, I was in the political history realm. Hmm. Yeah, I mean his his life story is is fascinating. It was fascinating to me, right? He he was a middle class Briton who grew up in China, a child of Christian missionaries, and he turned communist. Um, and and then his his political activism in Canada, I found that story very interesting. Maybe you can tell us a little more about the role that culture and theater played in his activism in 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 Canada. Well, he couldn't have been more British if he tried. It's an interesting phenomena that occurs when people grow up in expatriate communities. Um, Cecil Smith grew up in China. Both of his parents were missionaries. He was educated in a boarding school for mostly British youngsters whose parents were missionaries or business people. And he, he felt absolutely in love with British institutions, the, the Anglican church, um, British culture, British history, absolutely lived it, breathed it, imbibed it, even though he never set foot in England in his youth. So uh, he carries that with him as he comes to Canada, comes to Toronto in 1919 as a youngster, but over the course of the 1920s and the early 1930s, he doesn't see people, he doesn't see the country as living up to the values that he believes in. And he sees socialism first and communism later, um, based on the information he has, which we now know is completely wrong. Uh, he truly believed that that was a more viable way forward. And culture was one of the... Uh, one of the forums, one of the venues in which that struggle could take place. Um, the theater and writing and poetry was this place where he could help change the minds of the working class and convince them that there was another way. So he became very active in that space and kind of found his own hybrid British-Soviet voice in literary work. Mm-hmm. If I can ask a follow-up question, um, right? He he was a child of Christian missionaries, and then he became communist. How did he reconcile these two parts of his life? I, I I'm not sure he ever did. Although he uh, he changed his public voice. Um, he went from using he still referred to religion in some of his writings um, and he still continued to go to church even as he was a you know he's a practicing Anglican and a practicing communist so he he seems to have reconciled this through the ideas of the social gospel movement he believed in the uh, the teachings of the Anglican faith. He believed in Christianity that n- that never went away. Although decades later, he he stopped going to church. He told his son that he'd he'd spent his whole life in church. He didn't need to be in the building to practice his faith anymore. Um. So he he found comfort in that space that in trying to make a better world, to make heaven on earth, he was being both a good Christian and a good communist. Um. It didn't seem to bother him that 
the movement itself was atheistic or that he was working with atheists. I think a lot of people who were espoused atheists, at least, I, I think coming from a missionary family helped him with that. Like his parents lived and worked with people who were not Christian, who they hoped through their words and actions they could lead to Christianity. So I, I think that was a was a helpful lens for him to 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 deal with that tension. Thank you. This was really a great explanation. Um, and and yeah, at the time the Soviet Union was you know going after religion. Of course, the information was not really available clearly and globally. Um, and at the time, the economic and political experiment that the Soviet Union was um, offered both a, a, a concern and excitement um, globally. And even though, as you point out in your book, the accuracy of the information to support either position was often very uncertain. How did he view the Soviet Union as a political experiment? I mean, how did he see the Soviet Union's role in a world that seemed poised for another war? From his point of view, the Soviet Union had achieved the workers' paradise. And that is something to read in his writings that as a modern observer is really, it's really striking. It's really confusing. It's, it's almost offensive. Like he is, he is writing things at the time in the 1930s that is outright denying the famine that was occurring in Ukraine. He's denying that that's happening. He's saying that that is, uh, it's made up, it's being made up to discredit the Soviet Union. Um, don't believe it. Now, this is, now we know that those events happened and uh, we know how horrible they were. And it's it's almost like reading the words of a I don't know of a uh, of either uh, a liar or a fool, and you have to dig into the materials that he was reading and believing at the time uh, to understand how he how he arrived at that. There was a whole other world of newspapers, a whole other world of media that could convince you that those events were Western lies to. Uh, tear down the credibility of the Soviet Union. And and he really believed that. And he really believed it despite the fact that he never set foot in the Soviet Union. But he knew in his heart of hearts that it was a good place, that anyone speaking ill of it was lying. <laughs> Seems um, very, you know, like a type of uh, parallel reality that we have some experience with these days. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It's, yeah. It definitely resonates with the modern, um, you know, social media. Uh, read one version of news and ignore the others, but it that very much existed in the '30s too. Yeah. So I, I can you tell us more about the Canadian Communist Party and his involvement with it as part of this stage in his life? Well, the Canadian Communist Party was always small, um, famously. Fred Rose um, was elected during the Second World War as a member of Parliament, Parliament for the Labour and Progress, Labour Progressive Party, which was the wartime version of the Communist Party. Um, but that's kind of the most influence it ever had in terms of mainstream electoral politics. But it was very influential in 
other ways. It was very influential in organizing workers, creating forums where people talked and published and thought about things. Um, and at some points in Canadian history, it was uh, a big, scary boogeyman. And in other times, it was very much a sympathetic character when the government uh, was perceived to have overstepped and persecuted it too much. Uh, for a five-year period in Canada, the Communist Party of Canada was illegal, which made it the only place in the English-speaking world where it was outlawed in peacetime. And there's an important difference there. I'm not saying that it wasn't persecuted elsewhere in peacetime. Of course it was, but we actually made it illegal in Canada for a five-year period. Uh, it was illegal to go to a meeting. It was illegal to hold on to, um, to have any of their literature on your person, all of those things became a criminal action. Cecil Smith grew in involvement during that period of illegality. So even though it was fringe, even though it was illegal, he was still willing to accept that risk. And uh, he continued to be very involved um, while it was illegal and when it was made legal again just prior to the beginning of the Spanish Civil War. Hmm. All right. And now that you mentioned the, the Spanish Civil War, um, you you call in Chapter 7, you call him a volunteer pacifist. And um, another part of his ideological journey is his, his um, fear that fascism was on the rise globally. Um, well, maybe you can tell us more about how the two are connected you know what is a volunteer pacifist and how does one go to war um why did uh, cecil smith decide to to go to um participate in the civil war in spain well he was a pacifist in the sense that he thought that uh war was not the correct tool to solve many of the problems for what should have been used for instance he was uh he thought the first world war uh, British participation in the First World War had been a mistake. He was against that. Um, but he did see the war in Spain, the defense of the Spanish Republic, as being a just war. So again, uh, hearkening back to his Christian roots and St. Francis de Sisi, um concepts of just war, he, he, he did believe that there was a time and place for it. So he was simultaneously writing things about pacifism well, saying that this war was different, this was a just war and participation, and it was the right thing to do for the preservation of Spanish democracy. Uh, with regards to the growing spread of fascism, uh, he, he very much took a global view of this conflict of ideologies. And he wasn't the only one, but he was a bit rare in that he was looking from both of North, looking out beyond both of North America's coasts, right? He had his background in Asia. He was very aware of Japanese imperialism and Chinese nationalism and the, these other fascist or quasi-fascist um, movements. But he was also looking to Europe simultaneously and looking at things that were happening at Canada, in Canada and the United States. So he saw this as a uh, a global conflict between communism and fascism or democracy slash anti-fascism. And he 
he he saw that as being as there being no greater cause in Canada. He didn't believe in a in a, in a that a revolution was going to take place anytime soon. So the the way to wage that war was through thoughts and words and organization. But in Spain, it was to take up arms and to physically resist and put his own life on the line. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he actually goes to Spain, as you say, to put his life uh, on the line in this uh, war for for ideas or a war over the just ideas. And, and um, as a military expert, maybe you can give us a little more background on the international brigades and, and the story behind the Canadian battalion that uh, he was involved with. Well, the International Brigades was a it's a, it was a fascinating project in organizing. Of course, when the nationalists rose up against the elected Republican government, uh, the the bulk of the army, the bulk of the Spanish army, went with it. The Republican Navy stayed loyal, but all of a sudden, the Republican government basically didn't have an army. Now. How do you fight in a war if you don't have an army? Uh, well, they armed the, their citizens. They just gave out rifles to basically anyone who would show up. And it was the um, the your average Spanish citizen who resisted the nationalist offensive with varying degrees of success across the country. And that is what saved Madrid in particular, in the early days of the war. Uh, There was immediately an interest in foreigners going to help in Spain. Some people were already there on vacation or as part of the Workers' Olympiad, and they just joined in, picked up a rifle right next to the Spanish person, and they sort of aggregated into clumps based on language. Not surprising. It's a lot easier for 10 Anglophones to fight together than 10 people of several different languages. Uh, As time went on, they started to organize the first international brigade. So the first one was numbered the 11th, and it was involved in the defense of Madrid uh, within the first few months of the battle, of the opening of of the war. Anglophones uh, in sufficient numbers, obviously Britons showed up uh, in large enough numbers fairly early on. It's just that much closer, but Americans and Canadians weren't that far behind them. And by uh, January and February of 1937, there was enough that they built a brigade. It wasn't entirely of Anglophones. They moved brigades, they moved battalions within the brigades around. But uh, by October of 1937, the 15th Brigade had a Spanish battalion, a British battalion, an American battalion known as the Abraham Lincoln Battalion, and the Canadian battalion, Mackenzie Papineau Battalion. So a full brigade, mostly of Anglophones, fighting in Spain. And it evolved by, by trial and error and um, not always the way you would design it, right? Like Americans and Canadians were largely considered to be interchangeable. So they, they were Norte Americanos, North Americans. So they were just all kind of mixed in and, and fought together. Mm-hmm. So were they involved in, in serious combat? Maybe you can tell us about what actually happened on the battlefield. What was their experience based on your research? 
So the 15th Brigade was involved in, in several battles. They were involved in the defense of Madrid at the Harama Valley in February 1937. That was their very first battle. And then they were involved in a series of offensive actions that uh, some went decently, some went very poorly. Uh, they, they took significant casualties um, during the summer of 1937. Cecil Smith was involved in some of these early offensives, and he was wounded very early on in one of the battles. But he returned to the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion as a reinforcement uh, towards the end of its first defensive. Uh, for, it was an attack that turned into an attempt to hold onto the ground at Fuentes de Ebro in the autumn of 1937. They. Um, I would say they had a, a mixed record in that the soldiers fought with extraordinary bravery and against extraordinary odds. However, um, because it was an ad hoc organization, they couldn't do certain things to the standard that an army that had trained together with um, with commanders and staff officers with a certain degree of training and expertise could. So they had constant supply issues. A lot of that was because of the, the embargoes against Spain, but some of it was because of poor staff officership, poor decision-making in that sense. Cecil Smith was among the few commanders who had some military experience. He had been a militiaman in Canada and had been a regimental sergeant major. And he was a seriously interested in military history. He read very widely. So all these things were in his head, but his first battle was in charge of a hundred soldiers in charge of a company. And his second battle, he was in charge of a battalion, more than 500 people. He, he didn't have the opportunity to learn bit by bit and to be mentored and be taught. He had very little training before he was thrown into that fire of command. So were there some mistakes made? Yes, but um, all told, did extraordinarily well given the limited supplies and the limited training that they had before they were thrown into action. So how did the Canadian government um, respond to the existence of this uh, battalion both during its presence in Spain and after they came back home? Foreign fighters always present a significant problem for governments. Uh, it threatens to drag a country into a war in which they are formally neutral. Canada did not formally declare neutrality, but it did everything short of that. Prime Minister Mackenzie King was very eager to ensure that the Spanish Civil War did not become the tinderbox that caused the Second World War. And Canadians going to Spain and fighting in Spain endangered that. There was also a domestic schism that this whole thing threatened. Because uh, although Obviously, it, it varies at the individual level, but um, on the whole, the French-Canadian population in Quebec was somewhat sympathetic to Franco and the nationalists. 
obviously there's variation in that, but you had a English Canada that was largely supportive of the Republican government and a French Canadian population that was largely supportive of the nationalist government. And English Canadians were in relatively large numbers going off to fight in Spain. This caused a unity crisis. This led to Canada to pass a law largely based on the British law, which prohibited Canadians from going and fighting in Spain. Now, it actually prohibited Canadians from fighting on either side, but 1,700 Canadians fought for the Republic, and probably fewer than five went to Spain to fight for the nationalists. So it, it really only impacted one group over the other. And these people, these volunteers, because of that, and because the network that got them to Spain in the first place was organized by uh, the Communist Party of Canada, which was a heavily persecuted and monitored organization, a legal one at this point, but still closely monitored, the volunteers, many of them were monitored by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police for the rest of their lives. Like files lasting until the 60s or 70s that I've been able to find, and some maybe longer, but those are not available due to uh, privacy considerations. Mm-hmm. This is great. So, so he was one of those volunteers that were monitored after his return home? Yes. So he had an especially detailed RCMP file. Um, it started as early as 1933, and the last entry was the one to close his file based on his death. Um, even after he came back from Spain, a undercover police officer was uh, given the task of getting close to him. Um, and there's reports from various confidential informants about Cecil Smith and about private conversations Cecil Smith had in his RCMP file. Um, after the Spanish Civil War and into the beginning of the Second World War, after which he seems to drift from the party. He never formally breaks with it. But the less involved he is in party affairs, the less interested the RCMP are in him. Mm-hmm. So did he see World War Two? As a just war, I mean, he clearly had very strong feelings about the civil war in Spain. Um, what did you discover about his perceptions of the Second World War? He anticipated the Second World War even before the Spanish Civil War had concluded. Um, now, obviously, that seems very obvious to us in retrospect, but he was... Uh, he, he thought that the Second World War was going to start in uh, the, the spring and summer of 1939 and was surprised it took as long as September of 1939. He was convinced that Germany was um, had expansionist intentions. Um, Spain had illustrated that, and the Second World War, he thought, was just a matter of time. Uh, he did see it as a just war, and contrary to party orders, which flip-flopped. The Communist Party of Canada changed its position on a few occasions. Um, He initially offered the Minister of National Defense, uh, he said, I will lead the Canadians who have just returned from Spain. I will lead the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion into battle. 
one more time. Cecil Smith wanted to take the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion, not to England, not to France. He wanted to take them to Poland. And that's, a, I just think, a fascinating what if. You know, obviously the minister said, no, thank you. I'm not interested in, uh, in giving this particular group of people rifles and sending them overseas. Um, but what if Canada thought it wise to send this contingent to Poland that early on in the war? And then Cecil Smith uh, volunteered, um, and he wasn't permitted to join the Canadian Army because his eyesight was so bad. He was almost blind. His glaucoma was so bad. So he went home, memorized the eye chart, went back, and, and got in. But eventually he was, uh, he was kicked out officially because of uh, health considerations, but unofficially his RCMP file shows that the RCMP were meeting with militia officials somewhat regularly saying, this man cannot be trusted. This man's a communist. You got to get rid of him. Hmm. So how, how did he spend the rest of his life before his death? What did you discover? Relatively quietly, Mm -hmm. relatively quietly. He was after being, uh, booted out of the Canadian Army, which because it was an honorable discharge, he was entitled to veterans benefits, which became important later on in his life. Uh, he was able to get a job in mainstream publishing. And that was no small feat at the time. During the Second World War and during the early Cold War, it was often very difficult for people who had had any involvement in radical left-wing politics to, to transition their skill set. I mean, think about his resume, right? When he applied to an ordinary publishing house, like, well, where did you learn how to do typesetting and formatting? Like, well, I've been working on these five different communist newspapers for the last few years. Uh, but he, he was able to break in and he became very successful. He edited a number of um, trade journals and out of Montreal, he moved to Montreal and was was very successful at that for for a number of years. Uh, but he he died relatively young because he had a series of strokes. But because of his because of his um, brief Canadian military service, he qualified for admission to the Veterans Hospital. Uh, and in fact, his his tombstone shows you that he was a member of the Canadian Army but of course makes no mention of his time in the Spanish Republican army. No. Oh. So if you were to reflect on your research and on this book um, and everything you've discovered about his life, what would you say that Cecil Smith's legacy to Canadian history uh, should be now that you published his story and it's available to readers? I think that it's well. It's, it's, as a military history, it's it's his his story, his trajectory is is fascinating. I think because it uncovers like how the Mackenzie Papineau Battalion functioned, how it fought, how it operated. As a military historian, that matters to me. Um, but I think its main contribution um, of the book, but also what you get the most from learning his about his life, is how splintered 
the cultural and political landscape was at the time, like how much of your own world you could live in, um, how, how some of that shows you that there are just different perspectives on the same problem, but also that um, you could live in a almost entirely different reality from other people. Uh, and based on your politics on, and ideology, that other world can seem completely believable. And I don't think we'll ever know how much some of these people truly believed and how much uh, they convinced themselves that they had to believe. Like, I don't, I, I can't truly know if Cecil Smith really believed the Soviet Union was a worker's paradise or if in the depths of the Depression, he just psychologically needed somewhere to be a worker's paradise and he he grasped to this well thank you so much for joining me today this was a wonderful conversation and i really enjoyed your book i wish you best of luck with your research and um yeah thanks again thank you so much